Gift giving and gift receiving can prove challenging. You've probably faced such challenges already this Christmas season on a number of different fronts. Do I get a gift for her or would that be inappropriate? We don't have the money to buy them a gift, but we kind of have to because they expect it. What do we do? I hope he does not buy us a gift this Christmas. I hate it when he buys us gifts. I just don't know what to do about it. How to receive it. I don't know what to get them. Thought about it for a long time, but I just cannot figure out anything to get those people. They gave us a gift last year. Should we give them a gift this year? And it can get a lot worse, can't it? Some gifts are given with the self-serving hope that the recipient will respond by returning a greater gift. Some gifts come with strings attached. Some to make the giver look good or even to salve his or her conscience. Some gifts are seen as offensive when they're given. Some too extravagant. Recipients are routinely disappointed with very much disappointment then coming to the one who gave the gift. She chokes down disappointment that the little package wasn't a diamond ring and he can't understand why she's so unmoved by the bottle of perfume that he found in 12 minutes at Target. Well, none of this trouble, none of it, and none of the strings attached to this trouble ever play God on the night that He gave the gift of the infant Christ to the world. As the incarnate Word, the swaddled Jesus, lay in a Bethlehem manger, God the Father looked down upon the perfect gift. This gift flowed unsolicited, uninhibited, unsullied, unselfishly from His nature. And the motivation for God's infinite gift was not sentimental or cheap love. He did not send Jesus so a young Jewish couple could cuddle him in a stable while shepherds bowed and graphic designers took snapshots to put on Christmas cards. That's not why God sent his son. The love that motivated God to give this gift was epitomized when that gift, Jesus Christ, hung lifeless on a Roman cross. Flies buzzing about his bloodied carcass as hell shrieked with glee. That was the love of God. This was his love. And it is this kind of love that has won our hearts and brought us here to worship today. Many have come to celebrate sentimental love. Those that have been drawn by the snapshots, by the graphic designers, by the sentimental thought of this infant in this strange circumstance sent to us. But they don't go any further, any deeper than that. We know as we've been studying on this topic of love that God's love goes much deeper. I remind you of 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Chapter 4 and verse 10 of 1 John. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. As an appeasement of the wrath and the anger of God against our sin, not His. Ours. This is the love of God. This defines the love of God. And the implication, verse 11 of chapter 4, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Ephesians 5 that we read earlier a few weeks ago, verses 1 and 2 says this, Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. What does that mean? He goes on to say, live a life of love. How is that love defined? The cross. Live a life of love, Paul exhorts the Ephesians, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's no room for confusion there. Imitate God by living a life of love. What kind of love? Is it cheap? Is it sentimental type of love? Is it a love that simply overlooks? No, it is this kind of love. Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But as we have been noting 
As we imitate God, we must realize that our imitation is limited by our humanity. God's love flows from His boundless self-sufficiency, and it is absolutely pure and complete. But we are creatures. We are not self-sufficient. We have been created to receive love as needy human beings. We want to use that word very cautiously, needy, because it's filled up with so much false teaching today. But there is a sense in which we are made to receive love. Above all else, God created us with the inherent need to receive His love. I've argued in past weeks that when God sent His Son, when God chose to love this world, He was not motivated by a need within Himself, within the three persons of the triune Godhead. God knew no need. There was no need to receive love. We are born into this world. And right away we need love. We need the love of a parent to care for us and to nurture us and to bring us along. We need that human love because we are human people. But we know also that God has created us to love Him and that we must love Him and we must have His love. He does not need our love. He receives it. He accepts it. He is glad in it. But He does not have to have it. But we must have God. We must have His love. And without that love, we are damned. Hopeless. But we are also naturally wired then to receive human love. We've looked at these loves before. Let me define them again. I know you've got to look around the wreath here a little bit. I hope everybody can see this, but it's that time of year. Agape love, divine love. Remembering again, these words are not restrictive. They're used variously, synonymously at times in Scripture, particularly the philia and agape type of loves. But we look at divine love as agape love. We just put that Greek word with it. And these other Greek words which help us just to get a picture of what human love is about. There is storge, or the love of familiarity, usually seen in a family. This is, as we mentioned, that kind of love that says... We kind of have to take you in and we're okay with that. We accept you. There's family love. It might be at work. It might be at a family gathering. But we're people with whom we are familiar. There's secondly in the human loves of philia or the love of friendship. This is the love that finds something in another person that is shared. And it is excited to find that similar belief, that similar passion, that similar interest in life. Or there is uh, then thirdly, eros love, by which we refer to romantic love. A love where we, what, uh, in our culture, people say we are in love. That type of love. These three distinct loves are all human loves. Now let me propose this this morning. Here's what I'd like to do with us, and we need to go through this topic so that we can get off of it. But we've been talking about, in a very applicational sense, these ideas of love, and we're going to move on, Lord willing, from this point and look again at some great texts of Scripture, as God wills. Let me just propose this. First of all, and we've covered this in the past. Number one, human loves are not inherently evil, but they are inherently corruptible. These various loves, there is nothing wrong with them, but we see that they are potentially corruptive. They can fall apart. Family, familiar love can grow contemptuous. It can grow unkind. It can take the liberty that family gives to us to say things that are too much and too hard. It leads to sibling rivalry at times. It can become possessive and grasping. And at the end, it can be idolatrous. We can put the love of family above the love of God. And people do all the time. Some illustrations of this in Scripture and I'd like to go through each of these passages and develop them, and I'm not going to do that today for sake of time, but these are intriguing passages that demonstrate the corrupt storge love and where it can lead people. One would be Simeon and Levi. We see these two brothers. You remember the rape of their sister in Genesis chapter 34 and how they respond to that situation. In other words, this family love, this loyalty to family led them to do something very violent and sinful in their response to what was undoubtedly a very difficult situation. We think of Joseph and his family as we continue through Genesis and we've looked through that here in very recent days of how the the love that Jacob had for Joseph developed a sibling rivalry within the family. It is these types of things to which Storge is susceptible. It has to be sanctified or it can be corrupted. 
We have secondly, philia, the love of friends. This type of love can very easily degenerate into isolating cliques, to pride, we're in the group, you're not, and we'll let you know it, to the mutual corruption. That is, as two friends get together, they can strengthen each other to do good, but they can also strengthen each other to do wrong. Betrayal. In philia love, there is that capacity to turn that loyalty to the friend and to turn it away to another friend in a way that violates the first friend. And it also can lead to idolatry. We can put a friend above God and friendship love above God, and people often do. The desire for friends leads them to do things that God does not will. Think of some examples. You remember Amnon and Jonadab. You remember this infamous friendship in 2 Samuel chapter 13, where Amnon has, a, has an eros love that is out of whack toward his sister and desires her physically. And this friend comes along and together they come up with this plot and they agree together and it leads to a horrible sin on the part of Amnon. Or we think of David and Ahithophel when we think of the idea of betrayal. Here is a friend that has counseled David. Now, of course, the word friend there is used in an official capacity within the kingdom, but I think it still illustrates the point. This is a man that he trusted, and yet there is this great betrayal. We go to Eros, love. It's not so difficult for us here to see the potential for uh, corruption. But this love can become very distracting. It can become very fickle. That is, I will love you forever. It loves to write things on bridges and carve things in trees and express its undying loyalty. And then somewhere down the road, it turns those same words to someone else. It can betray. It can become very fickle. Mutually destructive. There are loves, romantic loves, where people... The last thing that should happen is for them to be together. But their devotion to their love, their romantic love for one another, allows them to do what they should never do. And this too can lead to idolatry. We think of Samson and Delilah. We add David and Bathsheba, Solomon and his many wives. I think of Solomon in the book, the Song of Solomon, and his intense love for what would appear to be his first love, we're not sure his first wife, but his intense love, his romantic love, pure. But something happens. It becomes corrupted, and he takes that eros love, he takes that romantic love, and he spends it on a thousand wives. Human loves, number one, are not inherently evil, but they are inherently corruptible. There has to be something that comes in and sanctifies this love. Second proposition, human loves must not be confused for divine love. This is a thing that I sought to belabor here in the past, is that there are times when we think that we love with the love of God, and all that it is is simply natural love. All of these loves reflect the image of God to a degree. But we must be careful not to think that our love for family or our kindness to workmates is the love of God flowing through us. It may be, but it may be nothing but natural love which is susceptible to corruption. If the love that we have, hear me on this, if the love that you have for those that are familiar to you, if the love that we have for neighbors and relatives, our family, our work acquaintances, is not substantially different then the love displayed by unsaved people, it's really not divine love. Our unsaved neighbors can show familiar love. They can show friendship love. They can show all types of love. This is not divine love. Divine love does more than cause us to like people. It does more than make us kind and decent and loyal to our families. People without Christ can do that. This leads to my third proposition where I'd like to focus today, and that is that human love must be transformed by divine love. Human love must be transformed by divine love. We are not replacing these human loves with agape love, but it's agape love that is to be at the heart and that is to emanate out through them and to transform them and change them. And we've been anticipating this idea throughout the series and I'd like to land on it today. I draw again from C.S. Lewis's Four Loves and an illustration that he uses that is so helpful. He speaks of a garden. I think it's an ideal illustration. He says the gardens are part of nature and they're good. But what do you need? What happens to a garden that's left to itself? 
It's going to degenerate. It needs a gardener. There's nothing wrong with the garden inherently. It's just natural, but it has to be maintained. It has to be kept up. Gardens need gardeners. Someone to weed, someone to tend, someone to beautify. And so it is with these human loves. They need a gardener. They need to be cared for. They need to be kept up. They need to be sanctified with agape love, pruned and weeded and watered by the love of God. But what does that process look like? How does it play out in the life of the believer? I'd like to hang the discussion on three hooks and the hooks of time. Let's just develop it in this way. First of all, let's look to the past. As we look to the past, divine love must be received. Divine love must be received. We are all born with the natural capacity to display human loves. And in our sin, those loves easily spoil and turn us from God. Let's turn to Titus chapter 3, verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. This is the condition of human depravity. We see some of these passions and pleasures may well be the corruption of human loves, but at any rate, there is deception, disobedience. There is obviously depravity displayed here in verse 3. But chapter 3 and verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. In our fallen state, we notice there in verse 4 that the love of God our Savior appeared. It appeared. And by that love He saved us. Why is that? We notice verse 5, that phrase, not because of righteous things we've done, but because of His mercy. Who were we? Who were we as the people that He showed this mercy? Verse 3, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by passions and pleasures, malice, envy, hatred, being hated because we were hateful and hating one another. Who were we? But He saved us in His mercy. Now, here's my question. How many morally foolish, disobedient, deceived, morally enslaved, hateful people do you know who wait in line to receive God's love? I've talked to many people in my life about Jesus Christ and the salvation that He provides And the vast majority, I'll have to say, we're really not so happy to receive that love. They don't stand in love to say, oh, I really need that. Now, there are times, praise God for them, and we rejoice in them when someone responds that way. But I have to say, most times when I share this truth with people, they don't want the love of God. They don't want to receive that love. And the reason is that in our nature, we don't respond to these types of messages. You absolutely need a merciful act of God. There's nothing in you that can save yourself. You've got to have Him. It takes transformation to receive the love of God. You believe that? We've got to be transformed to even accept it. By nature, we bristle at the thought that we need Him. By nature, both thieves on the cross reviled Christ. By nature, King Herod wanted to kill the newborn Savior, not receive anything from Him. By nature, declares Romans 3 and verse 11, there is no one who seeks God. One of the first things God does as He appears to an unbeliever is to transform that person to be willing to receive God's mercy. We sometimes struggle receiving gifts, don't we? It's not always an easy thing to do, depending on the circumstances. And we really struggle to receive merciful, undeserved, unadulterated love from someone that we hate and revile. Probably every one of us, if we hated someone enough, could turn down an offer from them of $10 million just to say no to them. Turn to Romans 5 and verse 8. 
We know this verse well, Romans 5 and verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Unless we think here that sinners means we just kind of mess up a little bit now and then and God knows we're not quite all what we ought to be and kind of just says, well, you know, it's, I mean, it's not a big deal, but we are sinners and He died for us in that sin. Verse 10 puts that to rest. For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. While we were sinners, that means while we were enemies of God, He gave His life for us. We don't like it, naturally, when an enemy gives us an undeserved gift, let alone their very life. And there is a broad road of people who will not receive Christ's gift and are headed for destruction because they will not accept that an enemy would do that for them. What happened to you if you know Christ as your personal Savior? What has happened? One thing that has happened is that He has transformed you so that you willingly, actively, gladly received His love. That's a work of mercy. There were two thieves that hung with Christ. Both reviled Him by nature, but one of those thieves had his eyes opened. He quit spitting at the life raft and he grabbed on as God enabled him to receive that love. Our world and many Christians tell us at every opportunity that the priority is to love ourselves and then we will see clear to love God. What God's Word says is that the first priority is to receive God's love. The first act of this life of faith is to come before God to open up our heart and in absolute humility take that gift from our natural enemy, his life for mine, and to receive that gift. That's a work of mercy. It's not always easy to receive a gift. It's not always easy to receive divine love. Not only flowing from God, but sometimes it's hard to receive that divine love as it flows from other people. There are people probably in your life who have forgiven you when you didn't deserve it. The gift of love that might be hard to receive. There are people who may give care and compassion when you don't deserve it. It's a gift of love that God will prepare us to receive. Think of it in these terms. Say that you're incapacitated for life. You can't move. You lay in a bed, and there are people who must care for you, and they give you faithful, compassionate, loving care to the end of your life. You know in your heart that's going to be a struggle. It's going to be hard to receive such love graciously. Divine love gives us the capacity to receive love graciously. And if there is anyone who does not have a sense that Christ is your Savior, let me say, I understand this is a great hurdle. It's a great mountain, it seems, to accept that your enemy died for you. But he did. And I would call you to simply receive that grace. And learn then through that sanctifying power to permit His grace to permit you to receive love in a biblical and godly way. That's the past. We must first receive the love of God. Let me turn quickly to the present. Divine love must sanctify human loves. Divine love is to transform our human loves. We need to work the garden, so to speak. Back to the wheel picture. The agape love needs to be the center, the hub of it all that sanctifies these other loves. That's the present. First, I receive the love of God. Once that love is operative in my life, then it sanctifies the way that I relate to others and to Him. And we must have this. Human loves are inherently self-interested. And as such, they're not enough. Would we be celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ if there was no such thing as unique divine love? Would 
family love, send Jesus to the cross. I think family love would only be family love if God the Father said, you're not doing anything of the sort. That would be harmful to you to go. You have a job here with me. We relate to each other. Don't go and do that. That would hurt you. Friendship love. Certainly eros love. These loves would not be strong enough to send Christ to die for His enemies. Friends might die for friends. Friends don't die for enemies. This type of love does not motivate us to give our life and lay it down for someone who does not deserve our love in any way, shape, or form. Someone that we enjoy being with, sure. Someone that's our enemy, Philly is not going to pull it off. And obviously, Eros would have nothing to do with it. None of these loves in themselves will take us past the selfishness that plagues us and makes us small people who share God's love with no one outside of our natural loves. Divine love alone is sufficient, and this kind of love must sanctify these other loves. I think there's basically two struggles that we have with these human loves. The first, on the one hand, is to love idolatrously, to love too much. On the other hand, is to love too little. Let's look at that first idea, and I look at just one example in Luke chapter 14 where Jesus drives at this very point. Luke chapter 14, the idolatrous human love. As we've looked at Storge, Philia, and Eros, we have noted that they are given to idolatry. We can idolize family and friends and a romantic interest. Jesus drives at that first one here in Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said. Now let me stop there because that is not a throwaway phrase. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. That's the context. When crowds are anxiously following Jesus, there's something wrong with the picture. We talked in the adult class earlier about a book that is really at the top of the charts, even with the unbeliever, about Jesus, about the Christian life. When the crowds are following Christian teaching, there's a problem. Jesus told us broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many find it. Narrow is the road that leads to life, and few find it. So the flag should come up when the crowds are following the teaching of Christ. Jesus believed Romans 3, 10 through 12. No one seeks God. Not on their own. And these many crowds, he knew their love was cheap. And the last day of his life on earth confirmed his pessimism. So seeing these crowds, Jesus turns to them and he just drives hard at one particular form of love idolatry, which commonly demonstrates itself in hearts. And that is storge love when he says, chapter 14 and verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Of what's happening here in the realm of truth, what's happening in the realm of the physical, I think all their hair would be standing straight up and they'd all be standing back on their heels with wide eyes. Where did that come from? Hate? What do you mean, Jesus? Well, obviously we need to temper Christ's word for hatred here, and I think in part He wants to shock them. He wants to get their attention. He wants to say, wake up and listen to me. But as we understand it, as we piece it together, which is what he expected them to do through time, as he pieces it together, what is the meaning of hate here? We need to hate our families. Matthew 5.44, Jesus said, love your enemies. Now, either he has really lost it here, or there's something to understand. He says, hate your family and love your enemies. What's that mean? Exodus 20 and verse 12 says to honor your father and mother. It's one of the commandments, and Jesus came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Matthew 5, the same context in which he said, love your enemies. So what is Jesus saying here? Obviously, hate here is not in the typical sense of the word that we take it. To despise someone, to do things that are mean and nasty to them, or to be bitter toward them. That's not, of course, what Jesus is saying. 
In the context, I think Jesus is trying to secure the crowd's attention, and he's using the word hate in this sense, to act against the natural interest of, and in this sense, to reject family love when necessary, or to keep it in its rightful place, to weed it. Jesus knew that love for family can pose a serious threat to the love for God. And when this happens, we must go with God and act against our family's natural interest. I think it is in this sense, in a different respect, in Romans 9, where God says that He hated Esau. Now, if you read the text of Scripture, you would have to say that God hates in a very strange way. Esau became a very wealthy man. And he lived a very decent life, all things being considered. Now, we know that he had problems, that he was a spiritually bankrupt, but God blessed Esau's life. As a matter of fact, even passed on that blessing purposely to him. What does it mean that he hated Esau? It meant that he rejected him. It meant that he turned away from him. It meant that in the purposes of God, Esau was not the one that God would choose to love in that situation. In fact, then when a person renounces family interests in light of God's calling, family often think they hate us, don't they? I've seen this, and you've probably seen this too. I've mentioned this before, but uh, when we were in India a couple of years ago, a young man came into the office while we were sitting there, and he was asking if he could stay at the Bible college over the, the next semester break because his family had just told him that we don't ever want to see you again. If you choose Jesus, they said essentially, then you hate us. And this young man, weighing those two loves, said, I must go with Christ. And in that sense, he, in the right way, hated his family. He had no hatred toward them in the sense of bitterness or meanness. He had to choose between these loves. And the love of God won. And his family felt that he hated them. That's what Jesus is saying here. Are you willing to make that decision? If you're not, you can't be my disciple. When the love of family, or the love of community, or the love of friend, or the love of a lover, real or potential, compromises your love for God, that human love is an idol. And Jesus says here, smash it. He's not saying smash the person. Hate your wife and children and mother and father. Smash the person. He's saying smash the love. That commitment to human love needs to be sacrificed on the altar of love for God if it comes to that. Now, often it doesn't. Usually, in fact, what is demanded of us is that our love for family, our love for children and mates and parents is to be sanctified by His divine love. It's to be actually elevated and kept clean and pure and right and kept from all of the corruption to which they are naturally given. We need to get this right. Let me think of just one point of application. Those of you who are seeking a mate, and some of you are very young, and really, believe it or not, you're seeking a mate, even though you really couldn't care less if you ever get married right now. But think about if you're not married and you would like to be someday, that's potential for you. Think. This is something you've got to get straight as you approach an individual for marriage. We've got to get straight as we go in that the love of God will win the day in our home, not the love of family. If it comes to a conflict, the love of God supersedes. I remember one of my early discussions with my wife now, but I remember telling her in so many words one night early in our relationship that I belong to God and that my love for Him would dictate where I went and what I did and who I became and that no other love could rival that. It couldn't be. If she had communicated to me in that situation some subtle demand that my love for God would need to take second place to my love for her, or she would be wounded in her love, she would have been an anchor around my neck for the rest of my life, 
and I would have had no business talking to her another day in the sense of interest toward marriage. Thankfully, she did not. And by God's grace, we continue to maintain that relationship. I say that by way of encouragement for those who would seek a mate. Eros can win the day. Romantic love can win out, and it can beat up the love of God. And it places us in a very difficult spot. Now, in God's sanctifying grace, that can be turned around in a family, certainly. But I am speaking only to those who are moving to that end because many times it never is turned around and it causes untold misery. So I'd ask you this question and then let me answer an objection. Is there any relationship, real or potential, that you are unwilling to give to God? If yes, that relationship is an idol and you'd better think very carefully about Jesus' warning here. Now, the objection always comes in here. That is so unromantic. You love God, you're only going to do what God says. It's so unromantic. It's just something that's not comfortable for many people. Divine love, I would answer, maintains and enhances romantic love. It keeps it pure. That's like saying that this garden, you know, to garden it, to weed it, to prune it, to water it, that's messing with the garden. You don't let its natural beauty come out. Well, just live with that for a while and there won't be a whole lot of natural anything. It's, it's not going to look pretty. Even romantic love, I think, is transformed by agape love. It's the true path to romantic joy as well as every other joy. But we don't ever lose track of whose love is first. It's the love of God because it's the thing, it's the force that keeps it all pure. There's so many people that are missing this today. It's being missed constantly. It goes right before our eyes and we don't even see it. Um, let me think of one example, talk to you about one example. I read a critique just recently and I think the author is solid on it. But he critiqued a marriage conference that took place just this past summer in Chicago. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's referred to as I still do. There were good aspects to it, and he was fair to admit those good aspects to it. But I think he did an excellent job of exposing this point, and that is that the bulk of the conference hammered home the point that trouble in marital relationships is answered by two things. Now, nobody stood up there and said, here's the two things that answer marital problems. But as he boiled down the whole topic, this is what it really came down to. Here's the two things that answer marital problems. Number one is you need these techniques. Number two, very related to it, you need this information. If you just have the right information and you apply the right techniques, you can have a wonderful, beautiful marriage. That type of thinking goes on all of the time in our evangelical world. And I'm not to say that everything said in this conference was evil by any means. But that's at the heart and the bottom of it. It's technique and it's information. What is that? At the heart, it is a conference gathering thousands of couples together to say the answer to marital trouble is storge, and ultimately, in this emphasis of this conference, really, the spotlight shined on what? It shined on arrows. Here's the techniques and here's the information to rekindle your passions. In such a context, one of the furthest things from anyone's thought process was serving Christ. Going back to our adult class, walk Jeremiah into that room and have him talk for a moment about the fact to serve Jesus Christ may land you in a pit, separated from your family. Are you willing to do that? No mention of these things. When natural family love is exalted, the divine love which pours its life out for sinners is dismissed. It isn't even a thought. And so I quote from various phrases taken, lifted out of this very conference as the author concludes, who has time for serving Christ when date night and sex night and reigniting the fire in the bedroom night and just sit on the couch looking at each other and quality time and family night increasingly fill the calendar? 
Now, the thing that gets lost in all of that is not that any one of those things is inherently evil or necessarily a bad idea. What gets lost in it is that that's all. That's the essence. It's all about technique. It's all about information. It's all about doing these things to focus in on us. And it's going at it the entirely wrong direction. It must be the love of God put in our heart that demonstrates itself within our home and within all of our relationships that will transform all of them to be relationships of joy, if God wills that, and relationships of hate, if God wills that. This is where love is idolatrous. Agape love, the divine love, will transform idolatrous love and keep it in check and keep it right. On the flip side of it, there are times when we don't love as we should, within families, within friendships, within romantic relationships. So the relationship is deficient. Sometimes it is selfish and sinful. We remember this list that we have discussed here of the corruption of these loves. And here again, as we look at couples in trouble, there are couples where, and I think this is really at the heart of these conferences that draw people together, how many couples could you ask, has the spark left? The romance died? Well, you're going to get a lot of people that raise their hand and want to come to that. But what's at the heart of it is selfishness, and what's at the heart of it is a lack of God's love. And when couples are sat down to consider its wounded storge, its frustrated eros, its bitter philia, the quest often then comes to natural realm, techniques and information. What we need is the love of God in our heart. When that love is operative within us and it's moving through us, it transforms our relationships, those things go away. Now, I don't mean it's some magical thing, you twist your nose and it goes away, but I mean that we live that way, we learn to love our family. We learn to make true friendships. We learn what romantic love is and what it's not. And whatever circumstance or situation we're in, the love of God transforms it and lifts it and ignites it in the right way. Selfishness. We could consider the fear of pain. Some are absolutely loveless. Honestly, they have crushed family love and they've crushed romantic love and they've crushed friendship love in their life. Basically taking on the idea, I'm not going to get hurt by anybody. I'm just not going to be phased by these sentimental human loves. They're so unimportant. I think we have to be very cautious to say that's not an option God gives us. And if your heart is cold to the love of family and friend and in the right sense, even romantic love, if it's cold to those things, you need to wake up. The kind of heart that God nurtures is a heart that's breakable. It's vulnerable. It feels the hurt and the pain. Do we see Jesus hanging on the cross absolutely insensitive to family? insensitive to his friends, particularly John, who's referred to as his friend, insensitive to human love? I don't think so. But not only is this approach wrong, it's personally destructive. And by the way, I think we could prove that in many other ways. Jesus' response to Lazarus, Jesus' response to John, Jesus' response to Mary. But this type of shutting off human love and all sensitivity is destructive. Set yourself free from potential pain of human loves and you imprison yourself to the small cell block of self. In that prison you will shrivel and your heart will harden to the point where it is impenetrable to pain. If we come to the place where we're impenetrable, to human love, we become a Stoic and not a Christian. Jesus cried at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept over Jerusalem. And Jesus cried out in Gethsemane, begging God to deliver him and pleading on the cross, why 
have you forsaken me? That's no hardened heart. That's a heart that really loves and is open to the pain that love often brings. In the past, we must receive the love of God, and He enables us to in His mercy. In the present, our human loves must be transformed to be pure and right and righteous as the love of God works through us. Our third hook is the future. I don't know how to go there. I don't know what to say about it. But there awaits for us as God's people a time when love is made perfect in our hearts. If you've got no longing for that love, what's going on in your heart? We've got to long for that. We've got to come on the Lord's Day and sing for it. But we see snippets of evidence of that kind of love pervading in heaven where it's the love of God that flows through us and transforms us for all eternity. One snippet, Matthew 22. Matthew 22 and verse 29. Now there's some people here who want to pin Jesus down. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and so they go to this leveret marriage law that the Jews had that when a man died and was childless, his brother was supposed to marry his wife and raise children for his brother. And they come up, of course, with a story of a woman who's had seven husbands. So who's her husband in heaven? They don't believe in heaven. They don't believe in the resurrection. That's the context. Notice what Jesus says, Matthew 22, verse 29. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. I think the indication here is that the natural loves may not exist in heaven. At least we have the word that marriage will not, and marriage is one of the greatest repositories of all three of these human loves, of family love, of friendship love, and of romantic love. There will be no marriage in heaven, says Jesus. I think the vision that we begin to see here is human love laid aside for the fuller and richer love that is familiar with all, friends of all, and married to Christ alone. You know why we have a hard time envisioning that? is because human loves are so real to us. Divine love is not. It's hard for me to imagine a life of joy without my wife and knowing her in that way. Now, I think I'll know her probably and we'll know each other, but all of these things, these lesser loves, I think will be gone. And we will enter into the fullness of the love of God that will need no such lines and boundaries that Storge and Philia and Eros place upon us. And you note that phrase there. Here's the hopeful phrase. I don't know what to make of it exactly, but I cling to it. Verse 29, you do not know the power of God. Where does that come from? I think Jesus is saying you have no clue of what God's going to do to people in heaven. His power to transform us. Soul liberty is found when we know we need nothing but God and can then love with divine love, can pour out our souls to one another in heaven with a love we've never experienced here and toward God with a love that we've never experienced. Liberty is loving with God's love, free of need. With all of these human loves, there's something of a necessary reception to it. There'll be a day, I think, very possibly, when we'll be free from all such need. In heaven, we will need no man's natural love. We will delight in being loved. That is, we'll be able to receive it in a way we've never been able to receive it here. But we will do so with no sense of need. All the human loves will have returned to their fountainhead, and we will live in the eternal bliss of divine love. Until then. That's the future. We come back to today, and until then, all I can say is let us love God with all our heart, 
Because that's where our soul is leaning. That's where it's going. That's the magnetism that's drawing it to heaven, to a place where we love Him with all of our heart. What else could Christ command us than Matthew 22? Love me with all your heart, soul, mind. He knows we're not going to. But what other command is there? Go after it with all that you have, the love of God. Let us love God with all our heart and let us love one another with pure love fervently until we reach heaven and come to know in a way we've never understood what real love is. So wrote the Apostle John. We sit on this for just 10 seconds. He knew Jesus. I don't mean he knew him like we know him in faith. He knew him. He'd been with him. He'd walked with him. He'd seen him. He saw what love did. Is it any wonder that this Apostle John said, love one another. As he loved you, love each other. Let's commit ourselves to do so out of love for God and in imitation of him. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, how we thank you for the love that you have demonstrated to us in Jesus. We give you thanks. We don't understand it. We acknowledge that we don't as we should. But we ask God that we will revel in it and begin to learn to emulate it. Thank you, God, for this time together and the thought of this season of your unique love for us, the demonstration of it in the birth of Christ intended to lead to his death. God, we thank you for your love. We acknowledge before you, Lord, that we fall very far short of demonstrating that love to others and toward you. I just pray, God, that we'll make a few steps forward here today, that we will grow and get a sense of what it is that you want of each of us in our relationships with others. Teach us what love is as we have opportunity in the weeks ahead to look at that question as to what it looks like between us and to the challenge that we have to love one another. Please guide to this end and sanctify your church, I pray. Again, we pray for anyone that knows you not as Savior and Lord. I pray, God, that they'll learn that to embrace you is to give up their very life only to receive it again. May they be willing to give up the life that is theirs as they see it and to receive a life they never understood before, the life that is yours. Please, God, grant this salvation to any in need today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.